knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned, there's not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp and, and my co-host is Ashley Glassick and we are back after a week off because Ashley and I both had some time away for spring break. So today we're going to be talking to Pastor Brian Wolfmuller about his book, Has American Christianity Failed? And I thought it'd be fun just in our intro for us just to talk a little bit about that because I know, Ashley, you have a lot of experience in that with your background. Yeah, I do. I, I grew up you know, indefinitely American Christianity. I think it's a very typical mega church experience. I even went to the Christian school associated with uh, the mega church that we attended for many years. And uh, you had mentioned something, someone writing in to us and saying, I grew up in the church and I heard the gospel for the first time on your podcast. And, uh, my my experience was really interesting because I I don't think I really heard the gospel until I was uh, 19 or 20 years old, and that's when I became a Christian, even though I could tell you every Bible story. I'd seen Joseph in the amazing Technicolor dream coat, and I knew the Father Abraham had many sons song, and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I mean, I, I, I knew a lot of Christian things. I knew how to talk and kind of sound like a Christian. I didn't really know any theology at all. Um, I went to church pretty regularly until I was about 16. I left the church when I was about 16. Um, but yeah, I heard the gospel from my coworkers when I was about 20. And that when I when I think of American Christianity, that's what I think of, a gospelless church. And I'm not saying every mega church isn't preaching the gospel because that's not true. There are very large churches preaching the gospel, but I think there's a lot that aren't. Um, and people are filling the pews in the thousands, you know, actually they're not really pews. They're more like 
comfortable movie theater seats, at least in the one I grew up in. Um, but people are filling the, the movie theater seats, you know, every weekend and, um, getting a great experience and feeling all the emotions that are connected with some really great music and hearing, you know, kind of some self-help and kind of Christian-y language. Um, and then going home thinking I'm a Christian. Um, and they're really deceived like I was. And so, I don't know, it's something I have a distaste for but i also have a a heart for people that are kind of trapped in it and who feel very assured that they're doing just fine and they could not tell you what the gospel is but they they go to an american christian church every weekend and it's very sad yeah it it reminds me too i know that um Sometime in the, I don't, hopefully not too distant future, we're going to do an episode on evangelism. And it makes me think you could have people around you, coworkers or neighbors who say, I'm, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to church every Sunday and whatnot, but they actually really need to hear the gospel, hmm. you know, yeah. where sometimes the people that we're sharing the gospel with, like your coworkers did for you. Right. You know, yeah. and I think of, I think of a, when the I think I've mentioned this before, but the White Horse then went to the Christian Book Distributors Convention, and their producer went around and asked people like uh, three questions or something like that. And one of the questions I asked was, "What is the gospel?" And I think it was out of a hundred, like only one used Jesus hmm. in explaining what the gospel was. I mean, there were wow. there. I think there was only like one or two that even gave a. Wow. A gospel could understood what the gospel was, or at least in their in their explanation. And then also, I don't know if you saw, I think it was Lifeway and Ligonier or, or something like that, um, did a did one of these surveys of American Christians and asked them some very basic essential doctrine of the Christian faith questions. And these are people who said, Yeah, I'm a Christian. And and it actually showed that the majority of American Christians, you know, if actually are heretics in what they believe. I mean, I'm not mm -hmm. going out saying you heretic, but in their <laughs> understanding of essentials of the Christian faith, they actually were expressing heresy. Like, this is what I believe about the Trinity or, you know, different things like that. And yeah. And you know, what's crazy is I was, I mean, I was taught that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I was taught that, but I had no idea what that meant. And the big thing that I had to realize, um, of course, by God's grace, like the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to, was that I was a sinner. Like I was the one that deserved death and yet Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And so like, you know, I had heard it in Sunday school or kids church and, you know, at my school that Jesus loves you. He died on the cross for your sins, but I just had no idea what that meant. It didn't mean anything really to me. It was just a, a saying, you know, that seemed nice. It seemed like yeah. a nice thing to do. Um, but no one told me that I was a sinner, that I needed to repent. I never, never heard that. 
Yeah, and just under even understanding, I remember um, when I first started listening to the White Horse Inn, and at at that point, uh, I mean, I had a pretty clear understanding, but one thing they talked about was, you know, they talk about um, Christ dying on the cross for our sins, but a lot of times they do not talk about the fact that he lived the perfect life for our righteousness, that he obeyed Mm -hmm. the law perfectly for us. And and why that's important? Yeah, the the doctrine of imputation. I definitely never heard that. I mean, and um, my pastor actually was talking about that a couple months ago in Bible study. How it's actually really common for people to be like, "Yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins," but to not remember that second part is His perfect righteousness was imputed to us, and um, that definitely was the case in my life. Yeah. And I bet we have a lot of a lot of listeners out there that maybe this is even newer to them. They're they're in a, you know, they're maybe now looking at being part of uh, a better church where um, essential doctrines are emphasized and mm-hmm. and the gospel is is clearly preached. Yeah. Yeah, praise God if you're in a church like that now. <laughs> You've yes. found one because um, they're not always easy to find. Uh, you know, I I grew up in a town that has a church almost on every corner. And um, yeah, I grew up in that town too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I forgot that for a second. Uh, but, you know, a lot of them aren't just aren't solid, aren't solid churches. So. Yeah, and we should say, I know that Ashley and I have said before that we both came from the same church. The church that she is referring to that she grew up in is not the church that we both came from. The church I grew up in is the church she went to after she became a Christian. Yes. The church you and I both went to was a good, that is a good, solid church. Right. Uh, Yeah. So, but I actually, I I went to the youth group at the church mm-hmm. that you grew up in. And at that point, they had a guy that was working with the youth. I think they were without a youth pastor at the time or something. And they had a seminary student that was running the youth. And he really emphasized doctrine. And he started meeting with some of the the young men. And um, one of those young men was my friend Russ. And so Russ, you know, we're in high school and he's like, Hey, do you want to get together and go through Ephesians? And he'd been going through Ephesians with this guy. And so, and that's the first time I actually thought about election because we're on chapter one. And now the guy who was training him was not a Calvinist, although Russ, my friend Russ, I think he's a reformed Baptist pastor now or something. Um, but it's the first time I'm like, election, that just doesn't sound right. And then when I heard the Calvary Chapel pastor that said that God looked through the corridors of time hmm. and found out who would choose him, and that's who he chose. And I went to Russ, and I said, I think this is how it is. He says, I don't think that's how it is. Hmm. <laughs> so Yeah. I think that's called the long telescope view, where God has this oh, really I didn't long. Even know how to- yeah, that's that's the way I heard it when I learned about that view. It was someone presenting it like this isn't true. And they were saying it's like God had this very long telescope and he was looking way into the future and he knew that you were going to accept him. So, 
Right. And, you know, there's so many things that I think back to at different points in my life where I was heavily influenced by dispensationalism or Arminianism. And it's funny because it's like you look at a passage like Ephesians 1 and they're saying, well, now let me explain why it doesn't actually mean what it says, because I feel like that's what was happening so often. So it doesn't actually mean that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Hmm. I mean, it doesn't, it, it does, but it doesn't really. So now let's try to explain based on what we think instead of looking, actually exegeting the yeah. text. So, well, why don't we go to our interview with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and then we will be back at the end for a quick yeah about that. And we are back with our guest today, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. And we're going to be talking about his book, Has American Christianity Failed? And before we get started, for those that aren't familiar with you, could you share just a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure, absolutely. I'm a Lutheran pastor in Aurora, Colorado, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. I grew up in Texas and New Mexico, which is where my wife and I were married. We both graduated from the University of New Mexico, uh, went to seminary in Indiana, and then we've been here in Colorado for the last 13 years uh, serving uh, the people of Hope Lutheran Church. Uh, we, I, we didn't, I grew up sort of Lutheran. I grew up in the liberal Lutheran Church. My wife grew up in the liberal Presbyterian Church, but we met at the in the Baptist Church and all of our friends uh, and where we spent most of our time uh, together was at the Calvary Chapel. So we kind of had to wander around to sort out what church we were going to settle into and ended up surprisingly enough at the last place where we thought we'd be in the Lutheran Church. And um, and that's been a real joy for us to discover the the clarity of what the Lutherans call law and gospel. And I, th I think that's been a theme of my life and teaching and writing uh, that uh, that simple doctrine of God's law and God's gospel, and that what was what drove the book as well. I wanted to tell a little bit of the story and contrast a little bit with kind of American Christianity with the Lutheran doctrine, but put that distinction between law and gospel out there for people to get a hold of and rejoice in. You know, we've we actually just finished a series on law and gospel. So that's kind of a theme that we've really been trying to emphasize here too. My husband actually grew up in the liberal Lutheran church also and then ended up in a Baptist church and ultimately Presbyterian. So um yeah, yeah some of that We're on background. The same trajectory just till the right the end. Uh that's great. <laughs> I'm not yeah. going to give up on them, though. You know, I mean, it's I consider reformed pre-Lutherans. So that's. Okay. Um, that, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Rod Rosenblatt's been trying on us for several years. So <laughs> that's good. He's got strong medicine. But it sounds like your background is is very helpful to the subject of your of your book also. So what is the book about? Sure. It's asking the question, has American Christianity failed? And it answers, I suppose, in two ways. Uh, we, what, I mean, you have to figure out what American Christianity is. And I, I identified four major theological themes that really shape and define American Christianity and that they're often in the background. So I'm not going after the, the Baptists or the Assemblies of God or the Pentecostals or the, you know, the prosperity gospel. I'm not going after like any denomination in particular, but, but what's the theology that drives American Christianity? And identified those as, um, as revivalism, pietism, mysticism, and enthusiasm. Now, each one of those has its own 
beginnings, its own problems, its own way to recognize it. And you might be interested in some of those other than, or maybe others, but, but to, it basically boils down to the human will and the human experience. Uh, uh, revivalism is an old historical thing, but it basically says my Christian life begins with me. It begins with my decision, with my choice, with the moment that I accepted Jesus into my heart. Pietism says that my Christianity continues, and I can be certain of my salvation by my growth and good works. Mysticism tells me that I can determine if I'm in God's favor or out of God's favor by my own internal experience. And enthusiasm kind of wraps around and gathers them all up in a pile and says that, that theological activity is in the heart. It's inside of me. The realm of God's work is on the inside, not on the outside. And so it cuts off everything on the outside from having spiritual benefit and forces everything now into the really into the theater of my heart. So I identify those sorts of things, and I talk about how they play their, themselves out in the life of the church. And then I hope I offer a gentle rebuke and um, a corrective to that uh, that points to the clarity of the Scriptures, the confidence that we can have from what the Lord says to us, and the hope the, um, and comfort that we have in hearing the gospel uh, from the outside in. From the external word first, uh, and then it, and then that word sinks into our own hearts. One thing, one thing we've talked about, and I've seen too, is that within American Christianity, and I think it fits into the very things that you're talking about, is there's not a lot of emphasis on the church, where it's kind of like our faith is this very individualistic thing, and then we just kind of come to church on Sunday, kind of as an afterthought. It's not. Um, there's not a lot of emphasis on the importance of of the church. Yeah, no, that's right. There's a reason for that too, because you you've heard this phrase, um, Christianity is not a religion; it's a relationship. Yeah, uh, that that's so popular. People just assume that, and they say, "Look, it's all about having a personal relationship with Jesus." And I've found that people are surprised when when it's pointed out to them that the word personal, the phrase personal relationship is nowhere in the Bible. In fact, the word relationship uh, doesn't show up in the Bible. I mean, a couple of English versions might have it in there once or twice, but not in the way that people are thinking about having a relationship with Jesus. But that's the assumed, um, th that it's assumed that that's what the Bible teaches. And that assumption makes everything very, very individual. Uh, it's one-on-one. -on -one. And now it's true that Jesus saves each and every one of us, that he loves each and every one of us, that he died for each and every one of us. But it's not meant for us to remain these sort of isolated me and Jesus. I'm going to I'm gonna date Jesus and I'm going to marry Jesus and that's going to be my religion. That That is not how Jesus himself intends it. I mean, Jesus is the one who invented the church. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's the one who had it inspired to be written. Don't neglect the meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another, even as you see the last day approaching. So Jesus invented the church, and he doesn't give us the option of, of neglecting the church, of being apart from the church, of thinking that my Christianity is just me and Jesus and nobody else is involved. Right. And even there's not, I even see often there's not the emphasis that there should be on, on word and sacrament and, and the work of the church. Well, that's, I mean, that is what the church, that's the definition of the church is the place where God's word is preached and his sacraments are administered. 
So your this is your um, your theological instincts, Colleen, are just right on because if you don't have the sacraments, then you don't have the church. At least you don't have the church in the biblical understanding of the church. They're they're meant to go together, and it goes back to the to the thing that I suggested at the beginning that um, that if it's if it's outside of me it can't give me spiritual benefit that's the assumption of so much of american christianity so when i look at the external preaching of the word or i look at these external things like baptism and the lord's supper those can't have anything to do with the grace of god or with the forgiveness of sins because they're outside of me they must be a work if if when you guys were talking about law and gospel the way that american christianity sees it they don't they don't say this but this is basically their understanding of things if it's going to be gospel, it has to be out. It has to be inside of me. It has to be in my heart. And if it's outside of me, then it's of necessity law. So they take they take baptism, for example, and call it an ordinance, not a sacrament. It's the first act of obedience. It's a testimony. It's my testimony of an inward grace. You see, so so because it's outside, it can't be gospel. And the same thing is true with the Lord's Supper because it's outside of me. It can't bring the forgiveness of sins. It can't bring the gifts of God. It's a work, and therefore it must be understood that way. Now, th there's nothing in the Bible that says if it's outside of you, it's law. In fact, the Bible says, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus says, take and drink. This is the blood of the New Testament poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. So that Jesus connects these external things to the forgiveness of sins, but American Christianity refuses to accept them. It refuses to accept baptism and the Lord's Supper as a gift from God. And, and that's a, a form of theological theft. I mean, if Jesus wants me to have his word of promise, if he wants me to have the gift of baptism, if he wants me to have his body and blood, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to receive it with joy, not figure out a theological way to reject it. But most, I, I, and sadly, I think most of American Christians are rejecting these great gifts that Jesus wants us to have. Yeah, you know where this has come up, we have a Facebook group with almost 4,000 women, and while we have a lot of uh, Reformed and Presbyterians, we have a lot of, of people that are kind of investigating theology and that sort of thing. We have Lutherans, too, and, and they'll come in, and one question that will come up is, can I just take communion by myself? And I think that's actually exactly the sort of thing that we're seeing, that communion isn't something you go and take by yourself. This is what's done in the church. Yeah, even the word communion means doing this together. <laughs> yeah, so right. so you, it would be, if you took it by yourself, it'd be union. It wouldn't be communion. In fact, you couldn't even have union. You can't even have two people join together. When Jesus says, this is my body given for you, we can't see it in the English because you can be singular or plural. But when Jesus says it, he says, this is my body given for y'all, given for you guys, given for you, plural. So that there's never, and this is an old pastoral practice thing that comes up in the with Lutheran pastors, is there's no such thing as private communion. Every time the Lord's Supper is being given out, it's a public event for the whole church. Uh, so even when I go to the hospital and visit people and the person there wants to take communion, their family that's, uh, you know, the confirmed kids and everyone who's in communion fellowship with us, we all take it together. And whenever I go visit someone, I always take communion with them. In fact, I think I had communion three times today because it's a matter of joining together as Christians. It's not an individual thing. Right. And well, so the, the four things that you kind of, that you mentioned earlier that you kind of are 
within American Christianity or define it. How have those things, and I think you've talked about this a little bit, but maybe you can expound on it. How have those things influenced the state of American Christianity today? Well, I just received um, the Billy Graham uh, uh, organization must have just sent out a magazine to all the churches. Uh, and so I've got a, uh, on my desk here a copy of Decision Magazine. And it's amazing to me that Billy Graham, the most popular pastor in all of the United States, has named his magazine Decision. And, and another, I think they have even a second one, Decision Today. And, they, and there's so much emphasis put on the decision for Christ in American Christianity that this it's a mark of revivalism, uh, and it comes from the Second Great Awakening under Charles Grandison Finney, a name that not many people know, but whose theological influence is so profound that it touches absolutely everything in America. He emphasized this that that there had to be a choice of the of the will to decide to 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 follow Jesus, to make yourself a disciple of Jesus, to put to cast in your lot. And so people have been to congrega congregations or services or concerts, or they've read books. They've gotten to the last page of the Gideon Bible. They've been out with Campus Crusade, and they have the four spiritual laws. All of this talks about how you have to give your life to Christ. You have to accept Jesus. You you have to su uh, submit to him or, or be subject to him or, or um, surrender your life to him. In, in the thing called the sinner's prayer, again, a totally made-up thing. It's not in the Bible at all. But you go and you you come forward and you pray the sinner's prayer, and this uh, this, I, I mean, I found Colleen that most P uh, Christians are so surprised that all of those things are not in the Bible, but they're not. They're nowhere in the Bible. In fact, the Bible teaches the opposite. When the Bible talks about the unbeliever, they use a word to describe them, which is uh, dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, and far from being able to choose, you are stuck. You're locked in. The natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of, of the spirit of God, nor can he, so that we are unable on our own strength, by our own will, to choose to follow Jesus. Now, to, just to identify that, I think, is the first step to recognize that this, this understanding that's everywhere in the world, that I have to accept Jesus, I have to receive Jesus as my own Lord and Savior, that this is not a biblical idea. That's already perhaps mind-blowing enough for most Christians. Um, yeah. But but then what comes in its place is such a wonderful comfort. I There's a favorite story of mine when I was, um, this was years ago, and I was, I went to McDonald's, and I was I was waiting in line at the Red Box. Do you guys have Red Boxes? Oh, yeah, you're here. Yeah. In Colorado, you Red <laughs> yep. Box. So I was waiting in line to return a video, and this lady, this old lady walked up to me, and out of the blue says, what do you do? And, and I, I said, well, I'm a, I'm a Lutheran pastor. And she said to me, I'm a Baptist. What's the difference? And uh, how wonderful. I mean, she's the sweetest lady, but I don't, I don't exactly know why she was asking me this. But anyways, I, I, uh, I thought a little bit, and I, and I said, well, here, here's one way to look at the difference. In your service, at the end of the service, does the pastor uh, call people up uh, to make a decision for Christ? She says, sure do. Time of decision. She said, and I said, in that, in that time, he, he has people pray the sinner's prayer and accept Jesus into their life, and, uh, and they give their life over to Jesus. She says, that's exactly right. I said, well, in the Lutheran church, we think about it a little bit differently. Instead of asking the question, 
uh, will you give your life to Christ? We ask, has Jesus given his life for us? Instead of asking the question, uh, will you surrender everything to Jesus? We ask, has Jesus surrendered everything for us? Instead of asking, will you pray to accept Christ? We say, does Jesus pray for us? Does Jesus accept us? And this lady was looking at me and she started to cry. She, and she said, that is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And I said to her, well, you should be Lutheran because that's what we say every week. <laughs> but that's, I think that's the point is that our Christianity, our Christian life, it does not start with an act of our will. It starts with an act of God's will. It starts with Jesus, and it ends with Jesus. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He, he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the one who does these things, and when we know that Jesus is the one that does it, we have this absolute confidence that it's done right that my salvation is secure because it doesn't it doesn't depend on me and my sincerity and my uh the complete surrender of my own life it depends on Jesus and he is a very good savior yes well i have to tell a funny story on the sinner's prayer when i was a teenager i was i think i was about 13 and i really wanted to understand scripture and so i couldn't find the sinner's prayer in in the bible <laughs> And so I had my concordance and it just wasn't there. So I went and asked my mom, mom, where is the sinner's prayer in the Bible? And she said, well, it's not actually there. And that just really shook me up. And that was kind of the beginning of me saying, I really want to understand what it is that scripture teaches. It, it just really shook up my faith. And for the record, my parents actually met working for Billy Graham. Wow. Association. So, you, so you know all about this. I mean, the, those rallies and, and that the the Billy Graham rally is just a the modern extension of of the rallies that were started in the Second Great Awakening by this guy, Charles yep. Finney. I know and all about he had, Charles Finney. <laughs> yep. He had he's perhaps the ugliest man ever to have a picture taken of him. I mean, yeah. he is just <laughs> He's worse than Charles Darwin. And people say that's really mean, but they that's only because they haven't seen a picture of him. And as soon as you Google Charles Finney, you're like, oh, he's right. That guy is ugly. But he, Charles, and his theology is even worse because he said, it's amazing to me. Finney said that, the, that every generation has had a sign to show that people are really dedicated to Jesus. And then in, in the Bible for the apostles, it was baptism, but we've come up with a better sign. <laughs> and it was the anxious bench. It was yep. the it was the altar call. And Finney says that the altar call is a better way to proclaim yourself to belong to Jesus than baptism. I mean, he's just that bold. Yeah. And 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 what comes out of it is the is the twin error that our will is free to accept Christ, which is wrong, and that the will, though, is open to manipulation. You see, those two things go together so that the the evangelical preacher assumes that everybody has the ability to make a decision for Christ, but that they have to be manipulated or moved or helped along, however you want to, as nicely as you want to say it, but manipulated is what it is. You have to be manipulated to the point to where your emotions catch up to your will so you make that decision. So all of these services are there to gin up the emotions so that now I'm moved to, to make a decision. And none of it is biblical. And all of it, and this is the reason why we want to criticize it, not just to be mean, but all of it takes away the comfort. 
when I know that Jesus is the author of my salvation and that I'm not the author of my own salvation, then I can have the confidence that my salvation is true salvation. I always have to question if I'm sincere, if I've done enough, but if Jesus has done it, I don't have to question that. Yeah, actually, when I went to Wesleyan Arminian Bible College, so they they loved Charles Finney, and my friend found Finney's Systematic Theology to Youth Bookstore, and we went through it, and he was, he was a heretic, but the Billy Graham Institute has a whole Finney Center. I mean, he said, I think, that Christ's death was only sufficient to justify himself. I mean, there was just really disturbing things in his systematic theology, and yet he is he is elevated as some great revi- American revivalist. Mm. One quote from your book which stood out was, uh, much of American Christianity is focused on the Christian and not on Christ. Could you explain what you mean by that? Sure. So um, w- with these four ideas of that my Christian life begins with me, that it continues by my growth and good works, by that I have comfort by the experience of Christ on the inside. All of this, it it um it sends us looking to ourselves. It it puts us our eyes on on our own doing. I remember a story when we were my wife Carrie and I were coming out of a a class where we had at the Lutheran Church. We were learning kind of the basics of the faith, and and they taught us about monergism. That salvation is worked by God alone and not by a cooperative activity between God and man, synergism. And we were talking about how comforting that was. And and Carrie was telling a friend of hers about this idea. And she responded and said, but if you don't know when you accepted Christ, how can you be sure that you're a Christian? Now, this is an amazing thing. That, that that everything goes back to that moment, to the moment of decision. And then everything continues to be built on um, my own sincerity and my own activity. So that Christianity is putting, um, uh, it, 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 it's, it's, American Christianity is answering these questions. How did I become a Christian? How do I stay a Christian? It's putting it all on me, on my will, my choice, my feelings, my experience. It puts it all on me, and it should be put on Christ, who is the who is the one uh, who who is the Savior. I mean, when we this is really the problem when we take it upon ourselves that we are the Savior of our that we are saving ourselves, then we are stealing that office and that privilege from Jesus. He stands and says, I will be the savior of sinners. And if we try to save ourselves, then we are calling Jesus a liar. But when we let Jesus be the savior that he says he is, now our attention, the ob- he's the object of our faith, the object of our affection, the object of our love, the object of our worship. And, and he, in, as he's the object of these things, he becomes the source of our confidence, the source uh, of our hope, the source of... Uh, my uh, the unwavering uh, knowledge that when I die, I I will see him face to face, face. Mm-hmm. So that Jesus is the uh, is the one from whom all these gifts uh, come. As you were talking, I was thinking in that context where it's all about you. That's why testimonies are so important to oh, a lot yeah. of American. You have to have this big testimony because that's all you really have to Mm -hmm. as assurance like oh i just i was a drug dealer and then you know which i'm not discounting those testimonies but you you'd have to have that wouldn't you i mean yeah 
Yeah, that's this part of this revivalism. You have this, you have this kind of pattern of conversion. So it's true that that um, uh, God can convert. You know, Saint Paul is converted. It's true uh, that the Lord can take the most, the greatest enemies of the gospel and change them. But the Lord can also bring children along to the faith, and that's probably the most natural way. When people are converted, they bring their whole family into the church. Like the, in Philippians, we have the picture of the jailer whose whole household was baptized and becomes a Christian, becomes a Christian home. And um, and so both are true. The, the revivalist model wants, you know, it lives and dies off of the conversion picture, and it says, hey, this is not your parents' faith. Your parents' faith can't save you, which is true enough. So then it... In, it it um it kind of encourages this this theological rebellion. You have to decide for yourself, and this is why every mega church is only a one generation church. I mean, because they grow mm -hmm. by preaching. You got to leave your parents' faith and you got to embrace your own faith. But that's troublesome when the members start having children and like, well, that's actually for the other people. But you guys should stay here. But they, no, you. I mean, you got to make your up your mind if you're gonna if you're gonna let the church be a generational thing. And so mm -hmm. most of American Christianity, the big box churches, the mega churches are a are conversion based. They're they're, they're rebellion based. You got to change from what you grew up, and that's why they only last one generation, and then they fade, uh, and they the children go to another place. Hmm. Yeah, I'm one of those people that, even though my parents' background and stuff, I did go to a a, fair, a fairly good Baptist church. Um, we actually didn't have altar calls and. And that sort of thing. I had visited another church that did the sinner's prayer when I asked my mom where that was in scripture. But um, I don't remember a time that I that I didn't trust in Christ, you know. Yeah. And some people like, is that okay? Okay, you know. And I I don't. I I can remember when I was four years old, and and. I knew that Jesus died for me. I, I knew that very confidently, and I always have believed that. I, my wife tells a story about going to the Southern Baptist Youth Camp, and they were writing their testimonies. Their thirty-minute and or sorry, their thirty-second and their two-minute testimonies. And so she wrote her her testimony there, and it was something like what yours was, Colleen. That hey, I, I've always believed in Jesus as much as long as I can remember. And the youth minister handed it back and says, "That's not good enough." Wow. You got to have some sort of sin that you quit doing, hmm. and so it, it, I mean, now that's a that's an abuse of American Christianity. I mean, you that's just a a misuse, and we can't judge it by it. But it kind of shows the spirit of the thing, right? That everything is now uh, about me and my change, rather than about how Jesus and and this amazing thing that Jesus changes the mind of God from wrath to love, from judgment to kindness, and that's the change. That's the work that we ought to focus on because that's the place where we find comfort. Yeah, you you talked a little bit and I had this written down already about the it's a relationship not a religion, but could you just talk a little bit more about why that is problematic? You know, you did talk about how it's not in scripture, but maybe even how it really that idea really has influenced American Christianity. Sure, there's a lot there. What uh it, first, it's a relation. It's a religion, not a re wait, wait. It's a relationship, not a religion. It's not biblical. First, the second is it assumes that the unbeliever doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, which is just not the case. Everybody has a relationship with Jesus. The unbeliever has the relationship of judgment. It's the relationship of wrath. 
So it it lets the unbeliever get off the hook. And and the third problem I, I would suggest is that the language of relationship puts things in terms of kind of this duality. One thing is being measured against the, the other. And while the Bible uses the language of unity, um, that we are one with Christ, that we are united with Christ, just like husband and, and wife are one flesh, so Christ and the Christian, Christ and the church, are one and united. And just to think about the difference, uh, think about that if someone were to ask you these two questions, how is your relationship with your husband? Or how is your unity with your husband? Those are entirely different questions. I mean, one invites this sort of judgment. Well, our relationship is not as good as it could be. You know, we need to work on it, et cetera, et cetera. But our unity is something that's established by God. He made us into one flesh, and that doesn't change. I am. It, it's a. It's a matter of fact. And when we when we let the language of relationship kind of govern our our imagination and how we picture salvation, it puts everything into a into terms of uh, uh, of judgment, of critique, of measurement, rather than letting it be the gift of God that it is. I think, and and I want to hear what you guys think about this, but I think that one of the ways that we can think about um, uh, a church is to say, what is the picture of salvation? And in, and just for a couple of examples, in the time of the Reformation, the Catholic Church pictured salvation like a bank. Every person was a debtor, and you went to the church, and they gave you grace, and then you would do meritorious good works. If you die and you have a debt, you go to hell. If you, have, if you don't have a full bank account, you go to purgatory to make it full. If you have it full, then you're a saint, and you get to go to heaven, and in fact, your extra good works go into the treasury of merit, the big bank account in heaven, and the Pope is dishing it out. And that was a metaphor that governed the way they thought about salvation. L Luther came along and saw that the scriptures have a different picture, and it's the picture of a court, that we are guilty sinners that stand before God, and Jesus is our advocate, our defender. He comes and uh, brings into the courtroom of, of heaven his blood, which is offered for testimony for us, and we are declared righteous and innocent. That's the doctrine of justification. But the picture in American Christianity is the picture of a high school prom. Jesus has asked you out on a date, and now it's up to you. Are you going to accept it or not? And then all the other guys are trying to get your attention, but are you going to focus on Jesus? Are you going to are you going to talk to him, and is he going to talk to you? That's how everything is is centered around this relationship. And Jesus is now going to come, and he's going to um, you're, he's going to come with his kindness, and you're going to have this uh, this embrace where you know that he's present and that he's with you. This is this um, that's what worship is for for a lot of American Christianity. It's that experience experience of of being with Jesus. And so this language of personal relationship is taken over as the dominant metaphor of salvation, and it's simply not, it's not biblical, and it invites all sorts of, of questions and uncertainty where the Lord intends for us to have certainty. Those are, those are some good analogies, and I think you could even add, and if you go to prom, and if you agree to go to prom, you're, you'll be happier. Somebody this week sent me said, look at this, um, look at this statement of faith at this church that my family is attending. And I, I looked at it and it, it said, Jesus wants us to be happy. Jesus wants us to have, um, you know, good marriages and, and successful lives and, 
and this sort of thing. And I remember as a teenager, that church that did the sinner's prayer, they actually, in the gospel presentation, which wasn't really much of a gospel presentation, said, you know, if your if your marriage is unhappy, if you're this, if you're that, come to Jesus. He'll make it better. That That's that was amazing. the gospel that they were preaching. I mean, there was some about sin and Jesus dying on the cross, but really what they were selling was this idea of you can have a better life with Jesus. That's really it's, what it was about. It's so unbiblical. I mean, Jesus comes along and he promises, hey, in this world, you're going to have trouble. And and we have more trouble when we follow him. Now, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to me that one of the reasons that people leave the faith is because of suffering. They, they suffer and then they think, well, how can God coexist with all of the suffering? But that's just simply not a biblical question. The Bible assumes that we're going to suffer, in fact, for being Christian. The Bible yeah. says that God himself suffered. I, that, this is an amazing thing that God suffered. He suffered the wrath of God. He suffered the enmity of sinners. He suffered the shame of the cross that God suffered. And so why, why are we surprised that we suffer? But you're right. American Christianity has no place for suffering. And, and so when suffering comes along in the Christian, they just, they're like, they blow up. Whereas we should, like Peter says, hey, you're suffering. Why are you surprised? Like something strange is happening to you. This happens. This is what it means to be a Christian is yep. you suffer. Yep. And scripture gives so many different reasons of why we may suffer. I mean, if you go through and find all of the times that it talks about suffering and why, there are so many so many different reasons. Like in Corinthians, it says, suffer that you may comfort others that are suffering and, and um, you know, different ones like that. Yeah. And that we rejoice in our suffering. Paul says, uh, suffering produces patience. Patience produces character. Character produces hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us because God has poured his uh, love, his spirit into our hearts. And so that we're supposed to joy in suffering. Which is, which is part of what it means to be a Christian. I mean, we know we're going to suffer and we're supposed to have joy in it, which is why, and that I think is the best way really to assault the devil. Because, so just imagine this, imagine being the enemy of St. Paul uh, because you're the devil or demon or whatever, and you don't want him to preach the gospel. And you say, okay, okay. I'm Paul's enemy, so I'm going to go and I'm going to cause him to suffer. That'll get to him. And then Paul says, rejoice in suffering. All right, that's not going to do any good. So, I'm going to cause Paul to, I'm going to put him to death. And then Paul says, to live as Christ, to die is gain. So that now, what are you going to do? I mean, if you're the devil and you're trying to get after the Christians and you say, oh, I'm going to cause them to suffer, but that makes them joyful. I'm going to put them to death. Then they get to see Jesus. Well, I'm going to let them live. Well, then they say to live as Christ. You can't, to, to, to be a Christian then becomes untouchable by all these assaults of the devil. But American Christianity does the opposite. It makes us vulnerable to that attack by the devil. The, the, it says you're not supposed to suffer. What Jesus didn't say, all who want to follow me, take up your lazy boys. He says, take up your cross. We know, we know we're going to suffer. And we rejoice that when we suffer, we're suffering for Christ and with Christ. That he is in the... <laughs> that that Jesus has an answer to suffering, and it's not to obliterate suffering, it's to suffer himself. It's incredible. Yeah, that really is. One of the things that you mentioned earlier, and I think I think this is really important to talk about, and that is this idea of Christian piety. Can you talk about how that's influenced the church and in what we see? Yeah, I, I think that there's a way that when, when you don't have the confidence of the external word, and, and you mentioned, uh, Colleen, the sacraments also, when you don't have that confidence, 
then you're looking in other places for confidence, right? So I can't, I don't have the confidence that when when Jesus says that my sins are forgiven, that that actually is for me. So now I'm going to be looking for other ways to see how I can know that I'm a Christian. And I'd be interested to hear what you have to think about this. Um, if you've seen this in your own life or in your own experience, but I've, it seems to me like people are always looking for confidence in two, in two places, uh, in their, in their grow, in their life of growing good works or in the worship experience of being touched by God in church. And, and I've, I just identified that looking for confidence in my growth of good works. We can call that pietism and the growth of uh, and the looking for confidence in my worship experience we can call that mysticism that's just the names that i've i've given to those things but i think that people are looking to those two places to know that they're christians do you, have you seen that or yeah i've definitely seen that i i've seen i'm i'm thinking especially of the second one where they're looking people are looking inwardly almost for an emotional assurance like like if i feel a certain way about god then i feel assured but if i feel like distant when i'm worshiping or when i'm reading my Bible, or like if i don't even desire to read my bible then then i don't really have that much assurance because my affections are are off um and that's that's very discouraging if that's what you're looking to Right. Wow. And, and by far the most common thing that, um, that women write to me about is this in, in regards to, I don't know if I'm really a Christian and it always goes back to them looking to their works for their assurance. And we did an episode on assurance and talked very strongly that Christ alone is is the ground of our assurance. And I, I think that that the two things that you mentioned, the mysticism and the pietism, have just really hurt a lot of people. And I think maybe even some leave the church because of those things. Yeah. yeah. I hear that all the time. People say, well, I just don't feel forgiven. Hmm. And yeah. and my my pastoral response is, well, who cares what you feel? I mean, yeah. does Jesus say that you're forgiven? And if Jesus says we're forgiven, then our feelings are lying to us, and you can't, you you shouldn't trust them. Uh, people say, "I just don't feel close to God." Well, well, so what? I mean, who taught you to care what how you feel about God's closeness? I mean, how how are you supposed to judge if God is close or not? Probably to see if He promised it, and we have the promise of Jesus: "I'll never leave you or forsake you." I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Now that's true if I feel it or not. That stands if I feel it. So that, so that this this mystical move that teaches us to trust our feelings is is dangerous. I mean, it's half the work that I do as a pastor is sitting there telling people it doesn't matter how you feel. What matters is what Jesus says. But we we are tempted by the devil to trust our feelings more than we that more than we trust God's word. Uh, there's this beautiful verse. I never can remember where it is. It's uh, somewhere in it's in First John chapter three, but whatever part of my mind that's supposed to remember this verse is dead. Oh, okay, I found it though. Uh, it's First John three eighteen uh, and, and starting and especially nineteen. By this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. But 
If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. And, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. So, so John is saying, if our heart condemns us, if our feelings condemn us, if our mind condemns us, we have something greater, if you can imagine it, greater than your own heart. We have God's word. And we can assure ourselves before him because his word is true even when our heart is telling us lies. So we have to fight against the, uh, we have to fight against the tyranny of our feelings. And can, when we say sola scriptura, one of the things that we're excluding is, is our own feelings as a source of authority. Hmm. You know, I, I grew up in a church that did uh, uh, winter camps and like youth group things. And I remember we would co all come home from winter camp being so excited. Like you're on this like mountaintop high of, you know, like, and you come home and that lasts, I don't know, a couple weeks, a month mm -hmm. at most. Mm -hmm. And, and by about two months out, you're back to, you know, the same feelings that you had before. And so I, I just totally remember being very discouraged, you know, a few months out when I just didn't have those mountaintop feelings anymore. Yeah, and, and every worship experience is trying to recreate that. And But boy, if you live by the feelings, you die by the feelings. Because when they're there, they're great. But when they're gone, oh, man. And, and you hear people say, I'm going through a dry spell. Or uh, I'm, in, I'm really in the wilderness. Or, uh, you know, they, they, they use all these desert pictures to try to describe how their own heart is. Because, well, because they've they're looking for that assurance in the feelings and and we just have to tr we have to say that our feelings are there to serve God's word and not the and not the opposite i mean if our feelings if we feel close to god we rejoice if we feel far from god we rejoice because we're not <laughs> if we feel forgiven we rejoice if we don't feel forgiven we rejoice because we are we have the promise mm -hmm. and we let our our feelings now have to have to be trained like children to serve god and not and, and not try to get god to serve our own feelings. I mean, mm -hmm. when we—I I was talking to Chris Tomlin, uh, this the the worship singer uh, fellow. You know, um, he how great is our God? He's always on the top ten of the contemporary Christian worship songs. And I was interviewing him, and and I was asking him about the praise and worship experience, and um, and he, and I said, "What's the job of the worship leader?" And he says, "To bring people into the presence of God." I I still think about that because. We live every day in the presence of God. It's not, but what that's not what he meant. It's to bring people into an experience of the presence of God. Hmm. And I and I asked him, I said, How do you know when you're in the presence of God? And he says, You you just know it. You see, it's not about the word, it's not about the external preaching, it's about the internal experience. And just as well as you can have that experience, you can that experience can be gone. And talk about an atheism factory. When we teach people to, to know if God is real or not, to know if God is there or not, to know how God feels or not, based on their own feelings, then you are setting them up for unbelief. Because as soon as you feel far from God, you just assume that God hates you or that he doesn't even exist anymore. It's amazing. Yeah, you know, I, I think about the Psalms of Lament, like Psalm 13, which says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you keep hiding your face from me? I mean, it's... I don't think the psalmist is feeling especially close to God or trusting of him and yet ends with, but I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation and go and 
even though he feels certain ways, and you see it with several Psalms, he always goes back to what he knows to be true about God, regardless of how he's feeling in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. There's these two Psalms 42 and 43. It's the same way. It says, why so downcast my soul? So we as Christians can look there at our soul and say, what the heck's wrong with you? You know, if you trust in God, he will yet save you. I mean, why are you despondent? What uh, you have Jesus, you have his promises. What, what, I, I, what am I doing listening to you anyways in the first place? Because I have a, I have a better word than whatever. I mean, the, the last thing we want to be to preach to us is our own emotions. Can you imagine that we say, okay, emotions, okay, feelings? Why don't you go up in the pulpit and tell me how God thinks about me? I mean, that is a recipe for disaster. And yet that's how most people are. Uh, most people say, I want to let my emotions tell me what's true. Well, for heaven's sakes, no wonder you're up and down all the time. It's crazy. Now, the Lord has given, I think especially, this is the Theology Gals podcast, the Lord has given to you gals, you women, an especially lively emotional life. And that should be, we should rejoice in that. I mean, the the swath of our own feelings and emotions is something, um, I mean, men have it too, some, <laughs> but, uh, but we should rejoice in that as a particularly feminine gift. And we should rejoice in this gift of emotions, but we should just know that our emotions are there to serve Jesus and not the other way around. We don't serve our emotions. Jesus doesn't serve our emotions. They're there to help help us serve and worship the Lord. So when we have joy in our salvation, we're, we're glad for that. And when our emotions come along and tell us that we should be despondent, then we we can even rebuke, we can even confess the sin of not feeling how we ought to feel, not feeling joyful over the Lord's gift of salvation. And Jesus even comes along and, and forgives it so that our feelings have and our emotions are, are set in place to serve God and not to lord over the Lord and his word. <laughs> So what are some things that are important to Christian faith and practice which are missing from American Christianity? Well, I think most especially, maybe enough uh, in some ways, is the, the doctrine of the efficacy of God's Word. And by that, I mean the power of God's Word to create and to sustain faith. So St. Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God in Romans 10, 17, or I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, Romans 1, 16 and 17. But most of American Christianity understands the scripture, and while they understand it to be true, inerrant, infallible, which it is, and, and that's great, they think that the Bible is, is correct information, but that it doesn't matter until I respond to it. So that the, the strength of the word is not in the word, but rather in my response to the word, in my reaction to the word. And if I could, if I could change one thing about American Christianity, I would, I would change that. That confession in the strength and the efficacy, the power of God's word, that that is, that is what, that, that, the, that the word of God is the means or the tool that the Holy Spirit uses to convert us. To, to, to give us faith, to create faith, to keep us in the faith, and to bring us at last to eternal life. And I think that uh, that is the source of the problems of American Christianity, the denial of that, uh, and seeing God's word only as information that has strength when I react to it. Hmm. One thing we've um, talked about quite a bit on the podcast is kind of the confusion of law and gospel. I, I see that as such a problem in American Christianity, but can you describe some ways in which that 
confusion of law and gospel, and you touched on it a little bit earlier, has had a negative impact on American Christianity. Sure, because one of the this distinction between God's law and God's gospel, His commands and His promises, uh, His requirements and His gifts. The, the the reason why we want to make that distinction is because uh, it, it is so that we can make sure that the gospel remains clear of the law, because the law is always trying to sneak its way in there and get mingled up with the gospel. It's always trying to uh, to take the clear. Uh, crystal clear fountain of God's word of, of promise and mix it up with the law. And the result is the confusion of law and gospel or the mixture of law and gospel and the, and, and, and the putting together of my works and God's works. So we see it everywhere in American Christianity. For example, how do I become a Christian? Well, Jesus does everything, but now it's up to you to decide. Oh, you hear that preached? Uh, it's just the worst. Uh, God has cast a vote for you. The devil's cast a vote against you. Now it's your turn to cast a vote. Oh my goodness! No, we've got as soon as God casts a vote for you, He's got you. I mean, this is it. This is the gospel, or or you hear this is the worst confusion of law and gospel. But this is preached all the time. Jesus did all these things for you. Now what are you going to do for Him? Ah, I mean, can you imagine? A, that makes the the death of Jesus into bribery to extort good works out of the Christian. It's the worst. So that always there's this mixture. The, the law is creeping back in for salvation, either at the beginning, my decision, at the middle, my keeping myself in there by doing good works or whatever. No, Jesus is the beginning and the end. We talked about this already, that he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the source and the goal. He is everything. He's the one who gives me faith and keeps me in the faith. And when I know that, when I have that confidence, then I have this unwavering hope that my salvation is secure. Now, do good works follow faith? Of course they follow faith. I mean, the faith that grabs onto the Holy Spirit, grabs onto a living and active God who cannot be, who's not sleeping and is always going to be doing a good works. But but those are the things that follow faith. The things that come before faith is God's word, these the gifts of the sacraments. These come before faith to create faith. And when we, if we want to focus on something, we shouldn't look downstream from faith, but upstream from faith. We shouldn't look downstream at the works that we do that follow, but upstream at the work that God does that creates these things. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus, then we have the confidence to live a life of joy and of suffering, uh, the confidence to live this life of serving the neighbor and dying for them, because we know that, that our Lord and Savior, Jesus, has died for us already. I mean, that is how he is Lord, and that is how he is Savior by dying for us and by claiming us in the forgiveness of all of our sins. So much of the American church seems to have a one kingdom Christian worldview, which we've talked about before, uh, as opposed to a two kingdom understanding. How has this impacted the American church? That's an interesting question. Uh, <laughs> th um, there's a, the, there's a huge, kind of realm of study, how, how Jesus has to do with culture. And this has been an obsession of not just American Christianity, but kind of European Christianity too. And they're always talking about that. And one of the problems with American Christianity is they have a confusion between the state and the church. And they all, they want kind of this, this dominion theology where Christians take over and then the world starts going better. But we, I think the best way forward on this is, in fact, not the doctrine of the two kingdoms, which Luther taught, the, the right hand and the left hand, the church and the state, but in fact, something more fundamental in the teaching of Luther, 
and that is the doctrine of the three estates, that the Lord has instituted three major realms in which all of us live. And those three estates are the church and the family and the state. So the thing that's missing from, from the two governments is the important role of the family. And when we recognize that, that Jesus instituted the family as the source of physical life, the church as the source of spiritual life, and the state, which came around after the fall, as the source of little deaths <laughs> to prevent bigger deaths, then we can start to understand all of these things in perspective. This sets me free to be faithful in my vocations at home, faithful in my vocations at church, and faithful as a citizen. I can be all of those and be a Christian. Uh, there's always this move. It was a Catholic move first, and then it happened in American Christianity too. The idea that if I get involved in secular things in the state, then I diminish my holiness. So, so that was the monks in the Catholic Church, and and evangelicalism kind of pulls itself into a cloister, or it's trying to grab the culture and make it Christian. But I can be I can be a Christian, and I can work in civil society, and I don't have to worry about losing my holiness because that comes about through faith in Christ. Hmm. So, one thing, it D.G. Hart has a book, um, The Lost Soul of American Protestantism, and he he talks about confessionalism is confessionalism important or how is confessionalism important and i know we'll differ you you talk yeah. in the book about the book of concord and we have the three forms of unity or the westminster standards but how how is being confessional oh and you also even mentioned kind of the american idea of no creed but christ Yes, yes. Yeah, they, uh, it, there's this disconnect when it comes to church history. I mean, American Christianity wants to, I mean, you, you even have the Acts 29 church, right? I mean, this amazing idea that, that like there was nothing between Paul's imprisonment in Rome and and me having a praise band in the high school gym. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like it, that's supposed to be the same thing, which is crazy. And he ignores these 2000 years of church history. Uh, it's a weird sort of anti-historical thing that American Christianity has there, and it's not helpful because uh, when we recognize that we are not the first people to read the Bible, uh, there's some comfort in that, and that's really what the confessions do. Um, Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 10, if you confess by name, uh, I will confess you before my Father in heaven, and if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. And so in those words, Jesus says that the church ought to be confessing him in the world. It's a, it's a commandment of Jesus that we confess him. And, and so when churches say that I've got no creed but the Bible, they're, they're cutting themselves off from keeping that word of Jesus, because Jesus says, you guys should have creeds. And as soon as an error comes up in the church, we get together and we recognize it and we say, hey, we don't believe that, but we believe this according to the scriptures. That's all the confessions are is being able to identify error. We live in this age where we are, I don't, I don't know, we, we don't like that, we don't like doctrinal controversy. You know, we say it's, oh, you don't have to disagree with each other. With In, in essentials, unity, but in, in all things, charity, and in non-essentials, liberty, or whatever the, the, the creed, the, the thing, the way that goes. And, and that's just lazy. I mean, Jesus says, beware of false prophets. In fact, every time the New Testament uses the word beware, it's talking about being aware of false teachers. 
And so the church has a duty to recognize false doctrine, to separate themselves from false doctrine. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that every single book of the Bible is occasioned by false doctrine. There was some sort of false teaching, and so Paul wrote to Corinth to fix it, or, or Matthew sat down and wrote his gospel to fix it, or Isaiah started preaching against it. And every book of the Bible is there because there was false doctrine that had to be rejected. So the church learns from that, and whenever we see false doctrine, we reject it. And, and if we don't have that sort of backbone to be able to do that, then we really are setting people up for—we're um, weakening people's theological immune systems so that all sorts of unhealthy doctrine can creep its way in there and, and make us sick. Growing up, definitely, I, I was taught that like like being in a denomination was— very divisive. So we went to a non-denominational church. And of course, we didn't have any creeds or confessions or anything. And I'm actually not surprised that some of the people I grew up with are now Eastern Orthodox or Roman Catholics because they they were just taught like tradition. They didn't get tradition or any kind of confessional or structure or anything. You have this sort of... Um this gap from from the death of Jesus to now, and there's no grounding, uh, there's no anchor, uh, there's no historical, um, there's no historicity, which there should be, and there's no continuity, and people are starving for that. The church is built on rebellion. They've kind of undercut their own foundation, and people go looking for it all over the place, and they end up going to the church's um, that make too much of tradition, Orthodoxy or Catholicism or some of these churches, which have given an authoritative role to tradition, um, and they've gone from one extreme to the other. Luther has the picture of the of the of the drunk peasant that gets up out of the ditch on one side of the road and falls into the ditch on the other side of the road. That's kind of how how American Christianity is. Uh, so you go from having no history, no tradition, to having like nothing but tradition, <laughs> and right. um, and, and so, but it's un, it's understandable. It's it's like the it's like the um it's like the girl that grows up without a dad, and she's in a such a vulnerable place when she starts dating because she's she has that lack, and so she she's is kind of overcompensating with the boyfriend and everything, and so you so you're in a dangerous spiritual position when you take out all of the history of the church and pretend like it doesn't even exist. No. Even on that note, you also see that when you were talking about the confessions and creeds, a lot of people that we just need to love Jesus. All that stuff doesn't matter. You know, you believe like you want to believe. And I think also that this is a result of that low view of the church. Yeah, I think that's and even a low view of Jesus, because if we imagine, um, imagine if I wrote a letter to my wife. And I told her uh, how I felt when I first saw her and how much I love her. And, and here's, my, here's the vows that I spoke and how much I really mean them and, and all this sort of stuff. And, and she now imagine my wife says, well, I don't, I don't need to pay attention to what he wrote. I just want to love my husband. Well, no, you love your husband by paying attention to what he wrote to you. I mean, yeah. If we, uh, the reason why we love doctrine is because we love Jesus, and He's the one that gave us the doctrine. Jesus says, uh, "Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to treasure, to hold fast, to keep every word that I've spoken to you." 
So the reason why we love doctrine and we fight about false doctrine is because we love Jesus and we don't want anybody to take a single word or a single gift away from us that Jesus wants us to have. So Jesus says, uh, here's my promises. Uh, for Just for example, we read on Sunday, John 20, where Jesus says, whoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven. We have our doctrine of the absolution from that. And someone says, no, you can't forgive sins. And we say, hey, hey, you can't take that away from me. My Jesus, who I love, he gave me that gift. And I'm not going to, I'm holding fast. I'm not going to let you take that from me. Or, or Jesus gives us a blessing. You know, he's, he says, um, I came to save sinners, uh, to seek and save the lost. And some people say, oh, Jesus done whatever. He didn't come for sinners. Or no, no, you can't take that from me. Or some people say, uh, the big debate now about marriage, which is crazy. People say, no, no, marriage can be this or marriage can be that. And we say, no, Jesus gave me marriage. He gave Adam and Eve to one another. He said what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus gave me that gift of marriage. I'm not going to let you take that away from me. So our love and our zeal for the doctrine is precisely our love and zeal for the one who gives us the doctrine. And, and we can't let anyone separate that. It's about, it's about deeds, not creeds, or it's about love, not doctrine. No, they go, to, they go together. They all have their source in Christ. Yeah, that, that's, that's very helpful, I think. And I think especially because we have a lot of gals that are kind of trying to figure out where they're at after growing up in a lot of what you're describing. Well, we really appreciate you spending so much time with us. Um, we're going to give away a copy of your book. So oh, cool. for our listeners, look on our Facebook page this week, and there'll be information on how you can enter to win a copy of Pastor Wolf Mueller's book. So thank you so much. And I think that it people can, where can they find you? I know you have sermons on your church website, which I will link sure. in our episode notes. The best, the best places, I've got a little website um, that everything ends up on. So all the video stuff and all the podcast stuff and teaching stuff. And I'll try to post a link to this interview up there as well. And that's wolfmuller.co. So okay. it's W-O-L-F-M-U-E-L-L-E-R.co, and I can send you that link. Okay, great. And that has links to other books and articles and everything else like this, how to get a hold of me and everything else. So Okay, and we'll, we will um, definitely link that in our episode notes also so people can find you. Well, thank you so much um, for for joining us. We, we really appreciate it. Oh, Colleen, okay. Ashley, you guys so? are a blessing. Thank you. <laughs> Ding dong! Jehovah's Witnesses. Ding dong! Mormons. Christian, are you ready to defend the faith when false religions ring your doorbell? Do you know what your Muslim and Jewish friends believe? You will if you get Andrew Rappaport's book, What Do They Believe? When we witness to people, we need to present the truth, but it is very wise to know what they believe, and you will get Andrew Rappaport book at what do they believe.com so i didn't take a screenshot of this ashley but i remember it well enough that i think we can do a yeah about that and for those i actually had somebody recently maybe don't listen to our podcast a lot like what's that thing you do at the end yeah about that and we should probably explain that yeah again. yeah that's right we haven't explained it in a while do you want to explain what, what it is? Well, what's funny is we're referencing a movie that no one should actually 
watch, but it it is it is funny. Um, we're referencing Office Space, and the character in Office Space, the character's name is Bill Lumberg. And you've probably like if you search Lumberg meme, like it'll come up. Like it's a meme where he's like, yeah, about that. Um, one of my favorite ones I saw when I was like dating my husband, but I really wanted to be engaged, but he hadn't proposed yet. Um, there was one with, with Lumberg on it and it was like, if everyone could stop getting engaged, that'd be great. <laughs> and that's like exactly <laughs> how he talks. But yeah, so we just kind of started saying, yeah, about that, like to describe right to describe something someone would say where you're like, oh, that's not really right. Well, in some of the ones we found are like almost right. right. And some of the ones we found are like really wrong. So it kind of, right. there's kind of a range in this segment. Yeah. And we've talked about, is it Spurgeon who said um, the difference between right and almost right? Yeah. I, I can't remember, honestly. Yeah. So. Okay. But so, whoever it is, I'm sure I'll look it up when we're off and I'm sure people are going to message me in. But I mean, discerning the right, the difference between right and almost right, almost right is not, is not right. So even things may sound almost right, but we want to make sure that they're consistent with scripture. So this one, I mean, this one's really far out. Okay. Somebody had posted it in a group, a screenshot of something. I don't know if it's one of their friends said it or it's from another group or whatever. And it said what Christians really need to do is put down their Bibles. That And it talked about how you just need to know Jesus. Jesus is the word. And I mean, it was very hard to follow this logic. Since Jesus is the word, you can, if you know Jesus, you don't actually need your Bible. Wow. <laughs> well, I guess that's when you when you read scripture very literally, you know, Jesus is the word. Yeah. So so you would have to have like a really good relationship with Jesus then, right? I mean, <laughs> well, I, I just always think of the quote from Michael Horton. This isn't verbatim because I don't have it in front of me, but he says, but who is Jesus and how do you know him? <laughs> Right. Like, how else would we know him except by his revealed word? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, that's like, there's a, there's this really funny video that's like kind of making fun of like youth pastors where he's like, I'll, I'll have to find it, where he's like, all right, everybody, take your Bibles, hold them up in the air. And like all the kids hold their Bibles up in the air and he's like, now put them under your chairs. You're not going to need them. <laughs> so that's, that's what that kind of reminds me of. Yeah. Well, and I, unfortunately, I mean, one reason I used that one this week is because we might not see it right out like what you described, but I think that we see a lot of that in American Protestantism where the Bible is, it's, where pietism and mysticism are elevated above the word of God. And mm -hmm. we're, we're going to be doing an episode on the New Apostolic Reformation in a couple of weeks. And, and I think in looking at some of that, we see some of that there where the, the signs and wonders and the experience is really above the word of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
And I, I think that what he's talking about appeals to your emotions and how you feel about Jesus. And I just think that's a scary, scary place to be in because we just can't trust our emotions. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you think about marriage, okay, any person who's been married for any length of time may have a day that they do not particularly like their spouse or want to be around their spouse or they're upset with them. But we don't say, okay, I'm just going to walk away now because I just don't feel like being married to you. Or you hear people say, uh, I mean, I know somebody who got a divorce because she just wasn't in love with her husband anymore. And, and I think that that could potentially happen in a, in a faith that is overly centered on how we feel about Jesus, or if we feel like we're feeling certain emotions from the Holy Spirit. Right. Yeah. Well, that one was pretty obvious. Yeah, that one was pretty obvious. But now, and I think that I do not think, I think that there is a I don't think most people, even in bad American Protestantism or Christianity, I don't think would ever say something like that. I think this was just some person who thought they had some, you know, light in their head, you know, about some wonderful idea. So I think that's a pretty rare thing, but I think it does play out sometimes in the way that people practice their Christian faith, where doctrine and the Word of God is not seen as as important when it's so foundational to what we believe. Mm-hmm. So, well, we appreciate you joining us this week, and if you would like to be entered for a copy of one of Pastor Brian Wolfmuller's books. Go to our Facebook page or Twitter. I'll have a link on both of those that will give information on how you can be entered. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.